It's always a challenge to take a portion of an epistle because the epistle is one argument. It's one document with a consistent message. And it's very difficult to read a piece of it and feel certain we have the whole package on how the piece fits. So I'll often zoom out and zoom in with you and try to make sure we understand the context. There are false teachers in Ephesus and Timothy has to go in there to the Christians, to the church, the believers in their assembly in Ephesus. And he's got to call out the false teachers and rebuke them and teach them not to teach human speculations as doctrines. Very challenging time in which Timothy lives. He received a prophecy from the mouth of the apostle Paul, a direct revelation from God, apparently from Paul, that he would be very effective in ministry. We want to look at someone like Will, it's promising, that has clearly a great future in communication of God's word. And we want to say, God's going to do great things through you. I think the same thing of John Miles, personally. But I'm not prophesying. Paul said, God is saying, you are going to do great things. It's direct revelation from God. Well, um, in that day, people could come up in church and say, here's what God says. And they would be a prophet and they would speak direct prophetic revelation. Read about it in first Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. There's a right way to organize and minister in the church in those, uh, in that situation, in those circumstances in that day. Well, there are false teachers, big problem in Paul's day. And part of the problem is the law. They're teaching the law and misapplying it because they don't understand it. And if you get the wrong meaning of something like the law saved Israel, then you get the wrong application of it. So the law will save you if you will keep the law and believe in Christ or something like that. And the law is therefore used in an unlawful way. And then Paul, as we said, turns to his own personal experience as the worst of all sinners in the church age because he tried to kill the church. He attempted infanticide of the church in its, in its first years. And that makes him, I believe, the interpretation, the reason he is the worst. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. And so he sets himself up as the example for everyone to see but I, God saw that I would be faithful and he's using me despite my failures. And so I'm a trophy of grace. And so we're all trophies of grace. And that's what he does uh, in a lot of chapter one. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, first Timothy 117. So he summarizes again the ministry of rebuke and correction to conclude chapter one. And then he says, everybody needs to be in prayer in chapter two, verses one through four. And so I believe chapter two turns its attention from Paul's attention from the issue of you're going in there in a summary mission to correct false teachers. And then he goes to a more general portion of the mission, which is um, how we're supposed to conduct ourselves in church. So specific it's, it's, it's the paragraph A in your mission is you're going to correct the false teachers, but paragraph B will be how the church is supposed to conduct itself. And we, we pay close attention here. We, well, it's all scripture, but 
there's a direct application now for us. We're not dealing today with uh, direct prophetic revelation except in the scripture. Prophets have ceased. So uh, false teachers are much easier for us to deal with, actually. We just open our Bible and say, no, that right here. But then all of a sudden people become emotionally illiterate and uh, they can't see that that's the so. And then you have to just say, I'm sorry, you, you can't be here. You're a false teacher. And, um, and that's the Hymenaeus and Alexander problem. Nevertheless, in chapter two, Paul switches to the big picture of how to conduct yourselves in ministry. And it's not a surprise to us that he starts with what? Prayer. And he says, first of all, and it's really explicit. I'll read here in the New American Standard. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. For kings and all who are in authority, that's the top. And then I think he then goes to the bottom so that we, <laughs> as Paul will elsewhere say, he's the dregs or the scum of the earth. So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. In the Roman system, Paul is a citizen, so he has some appeal. He's going to be executed by the Roman system, by, by Nero. But he says, we need to be in prayer for all men and for kings and all who are in authority. I brought this out last uh, time we got together. It isn't prayer for my lumbago. It's not prayer for whatever. I mean, we'll pray for that. But listen to what you pray for. Pray for the kings so that what? So that we can lead a, a quiet and tranquil life. Because the kings are best ruling when they leave us alone and let us do our work. It's a prayer for freedom. Pray for them so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, this is an interesting thought today. The rulers of our political discourse more and more, our political rulers are more and more, it seems, interested in involving themselves legally by their, by their decretals, by their, their legal instruments and their some, in some cases, executive orders, but it's also laws, also Supreme Court just decisions, which are often legislating from the, the bench. The, the, lead, the governors that we're praying for are more and more putting themselves between us and that quiet and tranquil life. What do, you, what do you mean, Pastor? Have you heard of the Equality Act? Do you have any idea what this is going to do here? We will proceed without a tax exemption. We'll proceed after they say, well, if you're you, now you're a commercial side, you still have to follow our regulations and we won't. And they'll say, okay, you're shut down. You can't assemble. Well, wait, does this church not believe in equality? Well, we're about to hear about that in first Timothy chapter two, uh, verse 12, verse 11 and 12. But, but of course we believe in equality, but the equality act is going to go after our right to say who works here, who serves here who enters those doors, what's acceptable for membership and determines our future. We're very close. We're on the precipice of the Bible being outlawed. 
as it's stated. Now, of course, it's subject to interpretation. And I know there are supposedly evangelicals who will say that what the Bible says about these Equality Act issues are not what we think it says, but they're crossing their eyes to read it. Try not to do that. So th there's a great application here. Pray for the kings and governors so that we can lead a, a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness and dignity. Pray for them. Now, I'm not afraid. Listen, don't be afraid. This country has a great prov providential history of God intervening when tyranny strikes. We do. The, the, the Christians that cry out to God, God, God will take care of you. We may sing it soon, but he will. But we should pray for them because they have a job and that outcome would be our tranquil and quiet life. This is good and acceptable in sight of God, our savior. And here is the point of the tranquil and quiet life. It's not so you sit in your lazy boy, right? Unless it's in your lazy boy that you're from which you're doing the work. Sometimes it, that's where I'm doing it. I've got a little laptop desk and I've got next to my chair. I can, I can work there. But my point is, it isn't just so that you're comfortable. Listen to it. It's acceptable, good and acceptable in the sight of God, our savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What God wants is for your mission to be successful. What he wants is for you, the salt and the light, to be effective in your quiet and tranquil life with all godliness and dignity. He wants you to be effective. That's the way verse 4 relates to verse 2. It's acceptable to God that you would pray for the kings and rulers so that you could lead a quiet life of industry in the gospel ministry. Now, in China, this is hard today. It's not impossible, but it's difficult because there are laws on the books with, and that's the system. The question is, how are the people enforcing the system, which prevent the laws prevent the, the people from proselytizing or evangelizing is what we call it youth. You can't tell children about Jesus. And it's very restrictive for the, uh, for the licensed church, the ortho, the authorized church, very difficult for them to operate in anything that looks like what Paul's talking about of the mission. That's why the underground church is a big deal in China. It's very challenging to do that there. They can do it. They do do it. They do it. They run great risks of personal impoverishment and imprisonment. And they are wealthy in Christ to do it. And you don't have that yet, but learn from your Chinese brothers and, and lots and lots and lots of sisters over in China who will serve the Lord regardless of what the government cracks down on, what they permit, what they don't permit. I love this old meeting house. We don't have to serve him here. We have to serve him with one another. You never know, God will flip a Paul every once in a while. He'll grab a Saul and say, oh, you want to kill the church? You're going to make the church. You're going to build the church. Be optimistic. God's going to do what he wants to do. He could grab any one of these systems or people running these systems and flip them to do his work in a way that you never saw coming. That's the way we got started. I just get, I get tingles when I think about what this dark time, what we seem we're heading into, what, what, what light God can bring into the situation. But that's our appeal. God, let us be about your work because we want to be pleasing to you, acceptable in your sight, 
God our Savior, because you desire, verse 4, all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Which brings us to our mediator, the one God and one mediator. My translation, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom as a substitute for all, the testimony in his own time unto which testimony I was appointed a proclaimer, an apostle. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. We went really quickly from the kings and rulers to the whole reason we're here. Notice how quickly, if you don't read the paragraph and read it in context, see, that's the value of studying discourse. Those that are interested in studying the text. You don't just grab one verse and say, well, we're supposed to pray for the kings and rulers. Yeah, but for what? So that we can lead a tranquil and quiet life. And why? So that God can be pleased by some coming to Christ because we're his workers in his harvest. That's the point. That's the concept. That's the context. And bringing people to know Jesus Christ is the only way in verses five through seven that they can come to know God. There's one mediator between God and man. Let's break it down. For ace, or sorry, hase, theos, for one God. Hase, kai, mesites, one mediator. We say there is, you don't need to say that in Greek, it's just there. One mediator of God and of men. We put the word between God and men. One God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Much has been made of the concept of the mediatorship of Jesus Christ. And there is the question on this concept, which Paul doesn't develop. The question, does this God um, in, in, in like let, litigation with us where God has a, a a case against us. He certainly did. Jesus resolved it. Is that what he's talking about? Where the enmity has been set aside because Jesus came and stood in the gap. Is that the concept of the mediation or is it more of a general sense in which we just have access to God through Jesus Christ? Well, the, the thing is they're both true. They're both true. And this means that there's only one mediate, 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 path to God. There's only one intermediary. When you say mediator, immediately we think we're in a fight and it doesn't necessarily mean that in Greek is what I'm trying to say. The point is that you and I have access to God and the throne room of God because we come in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's true for you and I who are the sons of God in Christ. He's our access. No one comes to the father except through the son is what we read in John chapter 14, verse six. So there's, no, there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. I, I was a little kid in Sunday school. We used to sing a little song about this. And it was basically just this verse in the King James, a beautiful little melody. And I always thought about this, that God is somehow attainable through the Son. And it, it's clear. It's clear you have... Jesus is divine and Jesus is human. And so both parties are represented equally in this 
mediation in this intermediary arrangement. Truly human, truly divine. In other words, the doctrine of the divinity of Christ or the two natures of Christ, that he's God and man, are in view. And I hope you know that that has historically been called the doctrine of the hypostatic union. He has the same essence as the Father, and he has the same essence as man. And those two hypostases, those two natures, have been united into one person. That's the historic confession of the Christian faith. It is always under attack. It has always been under attack. I have had many conversations with Neo-Aryans about how this can't really be, but it really is. And this is one of your verses that suggests that he really has both the divine and the human nature. So it's, I, it's exalting Jesus Christ. This verse exalts our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is, and it highlights that there is no other way to him. Remember in verse four, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And the way that happens is in verse five, that Jesus Christ is the only access that mankind has to God the Father. Now there's more in this mediation, talking about our Savior and how we receive salvation. In verse 6, who gave himself, antilutron, a ransom, who pair plus the genitive as a substitute for us, for all, the witness in his own time, who gave himself a ransom for all. And I believe the who pair plus genitive is substitution. He gave as a ransom, as a substitute for all. So the second doctrine that undergirds everything we believe and everything we do, which is under great attack today, is the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And it's right here. He didn't give himself an, as, as an example for us all. He didn't give himself as a ransom to Satan for us all. He didn't give himself a, a, as a demonstration of his victorious a victory over death for us all. That's not what it says. He was the payment price. That's what a ransom is. The kidnappers in our day, we talk about a ransom. It was happening in Paul's day too. The kidnappers have your kid. The ransom is X. You pay the ransom and you give whatever the price is so that you get the kid back. That's the idea of a ransom. You know, a king's ransom. They used to do it all the time, all through the medieval period. The king's ransom. How much money do we have to raise to buy the king back from whoever's got him captured on the battlefield? What was the purchase price for you? The blood of Jesus Christ. And so he gave himself as a substitute for us. And, and this is a reference to his redeeming work by paying for our sins on the cross. So it very much is talking about the thing God wants for all men in verse four. He desires all men. It doesn't say all the elect. It doesn't say that anywhere. It says he wants all men to be saved. And I am content with what the text says here. It says all men. Well, that means that some things God wants don't happen because all men aren't saved. And that's the nature of the text. That's the truth of the word of God. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance in second, second Peter three. We need to get comfortable with our God, who is the God who told Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites, who says, 
you, you Pharisees don't understand your father in heaven. Who re the angels rejoice when one sinner repents. You don't get it. Well, that means God's not in control. No, it doesn't. That's the problem. You think that if somebody has things they desire that don't take place, that they're not in control, that they're not sovereign. That's the faulty reasoning in all the systematic theology. The sovereignty of God is well established. There's nothing out of his control. And the problem is that we try to reason with God's, like what God's doing, what he wants, what he accomplishes at the level of our experience. And that's a big mistake. I think that all those doctrinal uh, conundrums are resolved in the doctrine of the creator-creature distinction. We are infinitely separate, separate from God in terms of our level of being. And so we shouldn't try to think of his desires and his choosing and these things on the same par as ours. But we do need to think that we can adopt the character of God, the heart of God, as he builds it in us, as we desire that all men be saved. That's what the point of this instruction is, that you think like him. Because Jesus gave himself a ransom as a substitute for, for all. Oh, there's another doctrine. The doctrine of the mediatorship of Christ, the doctrine of the deity of Christ, the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, and the doctrine of the extent of the atonement. For whom did he provide salvation? For whom did he pay for the sins? Listen to it, beloved. There's a big problem in systematic theology that people are going to go to hell to pay for their sins. But John 3.18 says that people are condemned because they haven't believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And I think that's the issue. And I've, I've been reading Wayne Grudem's systematic theology because I have to for class. And it's very helpful, very helpful to clarify. He's a very good writer to clarify the reform position on limited. They call it re limited redemption. We call it limited atonement. I believe in limited redemption the way I would define it, but they, there's a problem with how we use terms. Not everybody believes in Christ, but Jesus died for the sins of the world. Where did I get that? Where the sins of the world? Well, I got it in first John chapter two, verse two. I got it here. He's a ransom, a substitute for all. And you have to add to this text to make it mean more than all, like le less than all the people that he died as a substitute for the few. So what, what's the practical outcome of these doctrines that he's our mediator is the only that that takes you to only Christ. And that's the only hope. And don't look at yourself and don't look at anything else. It's only Christ who can save you. He's the only mediator between God and men. What about mother Maria? No. <laughs> not a mediatrix doesn't exist. Not a thing. There's only one God and one mediator between God and men. Everybody's good with that. Even the reform school is like right on no Maria mediatrix. Mary is not the mediator. Jesus is the only mediator. Now the next thing that he's, that he is our mediator takes you to only through Jesus that he is a ransom takes you to the work that he did on, on your behalf as a substitute for you, that you're trusting in Christ as the only way that your sins can be forgiven, that you're trusting in Jesus Christ as your savior. And what does this doctrine of 
unlimited atonement, that the provision of salvation has been secured at the cross. And by the way, because he died 2000 years ago at the cross, it was an event that happened over, I believe the course of three hours as darkness is covering the cross. That event, that work of Christ was sufficient for all of your sins, past, present, and future, and not ours only, but those of the whole world in 1 John 2, 2. That's what I'm trying to say. What's the practical outcome of that doctrine? And this is where, when, when you get to application, me and Dr. Grudem, I, I think we, we agree. I think it's helpful to agree with brothers, Christian brothers. What? What, what's the outcome? When you preach the gospel to someone, you tell them that Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. You tell them that Jesus is the only substitute for your sins. You personalize the gospel, not that Jesus died for sinners, but that Jesus died for you. He is the substitute for all of our sins. And so he's a ransom for all. You personalize the gospel. Now, what, what about the doctrine of substitutionary atonement? How does this, this is, this is undergirding everything we do in evangelism. We are not telling sinners that they need to deal with their sin. We're telling sinners that because of their sin, they're in a hopeless condition about which they can do nothing. And that, if that's not a sufficient state of repentance where we're in despair about our sin, then we're going to end up working for our salvation with our, with regard to sin. In other words, you're telling the, the sinner, yeah, you got a problem with sin and God's got a problem with sin. And so, so there's a separation that can't be breached, can't, that can't be bridged. And it is only through Christ. So you're telling someone in terms of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, as, you, as the undergirding doctrine of your evangelism, you're telling them that it's only Jesus who can satisfy God's righteous demands and his just wrath on sin. And so he took on himself what you had coming. That's, that's the, that's the salvation of Christ. I'm comparing our theology to what the text is teaching. I'm trying to show you how we got to our theology. I assume you know these things, but let me review them again. The only way is Jesus. He's the mediator. The extent to which he was the mediator is for all by paying for the sins of the world. The, the way he accomplished it was by satisfying the just wrath of God at the cross in our place, all of our sins. And what therefore we tell someone is that you need to trust in Jesus Christ personalize it as your savior trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins because of what he's accomplished the testimony in this is a challenging portion um new american standard says um the testimony given at the proper time but it's idios idios means one's own and kairos is the time okay the testimony in its own time or his own time. You have to decide because it could be neuter or masculine. So what's the decision? Um, I think this is what Jesus did back then when he did it. 
It was in his time that this happened. And therefore, we are all, all of us looking back to it and taking the whole world to swing their attention back 2,000 years ago in our time, 2,000 years back to the cross, the testimony in his own time. The proper time, the fullness of times. Unto which testimony I was appointed a proclaimer and an apostle. Well, Paul is, is uh, somehow dealing with opposition because of what he says next. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. Every one of us that reads Paul's letters, that have our Bible bound in beautiful calf, calf hide or whatever your Bible's in, hardback, but you carry it because you honor it. You assume that Paul is not lying. You just have to imagine the days in which Paul lived. He didn't have the following from those that he ministered to that he has from us today. His stock has risen greatly in the Christian community since the day in which he lived. Just read First or Second Corinthians um, chapter chapter eleven, where he has to say, I'm, "I'm I'm speaking as if insane to try to get a hearing from you, knucklehead Corinthians." He doesn't say knucklehead. I'm calling them knuckleheads, and that's not nice. There are brothers and sisters in Christ. You're like, well, are they our brothers in Christ? They've been dead for two thousand years. Yeah, that's the whole church. The whole body of Christ, every believer from the day of Pentecost till the rapture, and it'll never assemble. You never see it. You'll never see it organized until the rapture, until we're all assembled. And that is going to be an awesome day. Look for it. It's, uh, it's sooner than we probably think. And it's not going to be here for 2000 years. So I'm not lying to a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So Paul is making a testimony. Notice. I'm not lying. I am testifying that I was called to this ministry right after saying Jesus and his work on the cross is a testimony in his own time to what? To God's love, to God's salvation, to God's provision. So what this does is it tells us Paul's point, his purpose in life, and it reminds us of our purpose. We don't really have a calling in life. We don't have anything better or, or higher for us to be about than the making of disciples, because the one who told you he'd be with you forever until the end of the age, I'll be with you always until the end of the age, said it in a context of promising you had work to do, giving you the Holy Spirit in, whom, in whose power you would do it. So I want to ask you, are you equipped by this message to share Jesus Christ? If not, why not? What do you need to be able to express the message, the testimony of only Christ, only Christ as your access to God because of his substitution in your place. He died for your sins at the cross so that you say it to the person and personalize it to them. He died for your sins on the cross. What's holding you back from sharing that message? I'll tell you, there's two or three problems we have with it. One is that we empathize with the other person say they don't necessarily think like we think about things. So, you know, they don't understand the way we understand. So I'm going to have to get some context. If you feel that way, you're probably right. But I think that's an, an inducement for you to spend more time with the person to go after them more rather than to say, well, that was, that's a big hill to climb. I'm just going to pass this one by. So one of the problems is context. And we feel like, ah, they don't understand like I understand. You'd be surprised what a clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ will clarify for people. One thing is you haven't practiced. And so you're not really good at having this conversation. You're just kind of not sure how it's going to go. Hey, 
I want you all to go break some dishes. I want you all to get in it and try it and mess up profoundly. Go mess it up in the sense that, well, that conversation didn't go the way I'd like it to go. I've never had an evangelistic conversation that I knew how it was going to turn out. It's not like watching reruns. I've already seen this movie, but I like it and I'll watch it, you know, <laughs> every time it's a, it's a different ball game. And, and that's, that's kind of exciting. It's very exciting. We think there's a context problem with the person. We're afraid of what we might trip up and mess up. I don't want, I don't want you to mess up your gospel presentation. Understand. I'm not telling you to go actually fail. I'm telling you to be unafraid to fail, fail profoundly rather than do nothing. What else is holding us back? I'm worried about what they'll say or think about me. Very common. You need to recognize that feeling you get. It's not a thought you're having. It's a feeling. I feel like they're going to think less of me or I'm going to offend them or something. That's a time for prayer. You need to talk to God about that. Get some perspective as you go to the throne of grace. Father, I want this person to be saved and I do believe in your son. And I am trusting in you that you have me to do this work. So please don't let me fail massively. Let me say something useful to you in this person's life. Another problem we have is that we feel like in this encounter, this is it. I've got to, I've got to close the deal. When we evangelize, we just got to close the deal with the person in this time. You never have to close the deal. You never have to close the deal. Only the Holy Spirit closes the deal. Only the Holy Spirit. And so pressure's off you. You have to testify. You don't have to convince. You have to testify. That means to bear witness. You have to say, Jesus, you can even do it in a very, this is very um, intimate, like self-sharing with the person. I would go there if I were you. Jesus paid for my sins and I have eternal life because I trusted in him. Can you say Jesus paid for my sins and I have eternal life because I trusted him? Every one of you can say that. So why can't you say that to Yankee unbeliever around you? Well, because, you know, X. Well, think about what's holding you back from saying that. And then start looking for the opportunity to say that. Jesus paid for my sins. He died for our sins and rose from the dead. And I have eternal life because I've trusted in him. And I have a walk with God because I've trusted in Christ. That's called a testimony. That's bearing witness for Jesus Christ. You, get, you personalize it. It's about you know, what happened to you. But you, you focus on Jesus Christ and what God did through him on your account. I mean, it's crazy for me to even tell you this unbelieving Yankee person around me. It's, it's crazy for me to say this because I know it's an unpopular thing. It's unwelcome. People think Christians are homophobes or whatever the, the trope is of the day. I, I, I know it's, it's kind of not in style. And so even stronger evidence that I'm truly convicted of this and you should consider it that I'm telling you this. What are our objections? What holds us back from sharing Christ? Well, it's a professional situation. It's the workplace. I really have to manage that. Everybody at work knows that. 
It gave us all pause when the chaplains in the United States Army burned all the Iraqi Bibles, all the Bibles that were printed here in Arabic, sent over to Iraq. And then the, the army made the chaplains burn them. A little bit different from how MacArthur did when we rebuilt Japan and he had all the, all the Bibles printed and distributed. A little different, just a slightly different approach to, uh, to the gospel as a national policy. You got to be careful who you talk to and how you talk to them. Why don't we do it? Why don't we share Christ? Well, one reason is because we're not talking to God about these people that we're dealing with. We may be talking to him about him, but it's more like the prayers of David against uh, Doeg the Edomite or whoever. We're, we're praying imprecatory prayers, imprecatory prayers about, uh, about the person. And God, please remove my enemy from before me and all these things. Maybe you should pray that God would flip them. It'd be great. It'd be great to see the person that scoffs the most become a loudmouth for Jesus instead of a loudmouth against him. Why don't we share Christ? Why? Well, we don't, we, we haven't been trained. Uh, we don't know, understand the, the, the doctrine very well. Uh, we, if you've got a hesitancy in your heart about whether Jesus did pay for their sins, that's a big problem for this passage. The better to just say Jesus died for your sins and Grudem even says something close to that. What you need to do is consider this person much like we're told to consider one another, to stir each other up to love and good works, which I'm doing with you right now. That's what I'm trying to do. Consider you, stir you up to love and good works, the good work, the greatest work sharing Christ. Maybe you need to consider this person and spend a couple seconds in prayer before conversations. I love the way Nehemiah begins. He begins with prayer. Give me uh, uh, mercy in this man's sight, however he says it. God, God, go before me in the conversation I'm about to have the king. Behold, I'm the cupbearer of the king. And he goes in and asks to go build the wall. You should probably ask God's blessing on everything you're about to say when you're dealing with the unbelieving world. Everybody, every one of you at work, you're about to talk to a coworker. You're about to talk to a boss. You're about to talk to a customer. So it's time for silent prayer to get you in the game, to ask God to be gracious to this person. Father, give me a shot. Give me an opportunity. Finally, my favorite book on evangelism uh, that I've, that I, well, one of my favorite books from grandpa, pastor that trained my pastor, his name is Lewis Spirit Schaefer. And, um, he, he has a great insight about um, evangelism, that the best preparation in evangelism is prayer for that person. Does anybody here know what the list is? Do y'all know what the list is? You know, as new faces arrive here, the list grows. Do y'all know what the list is? <laughs> it's good to not know because now you get to know. Here it is. The list is a little thing we call all the people in your life that I don't know, but you know, that don't know Christ. And, and you don't know what, we don't know each other's list, but together as a church family, if we stacked all that list together, that God knows that, we, that's a pretty considerable list. I imagine hundreds and hundreds of people. Just check your Facebook list. Some of you are like, I don't do Facebook. And I say, amen. 
But I'm just saying, who in your life doesn't know Christ? They're on the list. And I'm not pressuring you to have a conversation with them and fail, you know, fail mightily that, that you, it's not time for. Don't mess this up. I'm just saying you should be in diligent prayer for them. Are you praying as you should? As we started, first of all, I urge that the treaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Your God wants the people on your list to know Jesus Christ. And it may be that he is setting up that conversation where you get to say it. Today, 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 7, you should have been equipped to say it. There's only one way, the mediator, Jesus Christ, the only way to God. And then go to John 14, 6 if you need to. The reason he's the only way is that he's the ransom. He's the purchase price for all men as a substitute. He has substituted us and taken our sins on himself in our place and satisfied God's wrath. You can even explain the mechanics of it. All men are born condemned in sin. Go to Romans 5, 12. In Jesus Christ, the provision for eternal life was accomplished at the cross of Jesus Christ in his own time. So what you need to do is consider the one who can save you from your sins and trust in him because since he died for all, he died for you. You need to personalize it. Ask God for opportunities. Finally, the Lord Jesus, my last finally, the Lord Jesus taught us, I got a lot of finalies. Finally, number three, Lord Jesus taught us to ask for the harvest to be, to be bountiful for, for, for the, the reapers to go in, for the harvesters to go in. Remember John chapter four, ask the Lord of the harvest that he send workers into his harvest for the fields are white. It's, it's ready. The, 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 the fields are ripe for harvest. Now, Jesus prophetically can look at the fields in Samaria and say, there's about to be a massive evangelism event here. And so pray for the, the, the Lord, God, the father, the Lord of the harvest to send workers, but he's equipping them to do the work. So they, as the workers are asking God to send the workers, that's think about the context of that statement. So let's do it. Father, we thank you. We bless you for the ministry of the gospel. We say it, thank you for the ministry of the gospel, but we don't always think how that connects to us, that you've got a call on our lives. You put your spirit in us to make us witnesses, not just the pastors, not just the evangelists, not just the apostles and the prophets, but all of us being equipped by your word for the ministry of service. Father, give us the boldness and the love and the compassion and the long suffering and all that goes with love for the lost that you have for them to share your son with them, to help them understand our mediator, our savior. Father, give us the grace and wisdom to, to know when to ask you, when to talk to you on their behalf. Help us think in terms of being on mission in our daily walk, in our work, in our dealings with our children, with our spouses, in everything you have us doing. We're either sharing Christ with unbelievers or helping believers grow in Christ through your word. God, make us useful to you for you are the Lord of the harvest and we desire that you would send workers into whatever harvest is here, that you'd let us be successful. God, we ask it in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.